You are listening to the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast. Welcome to the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Hampton. My Unusually Well-Informed guest today is Fotini Iconomopoulos. Fotini is an author, keynote speaker, MBA instructor, trainer, and advisor. Nicknamed the negotiator as a child, she helps people and organizations build the negotiation skills they need to get what they want. Today, Fotini and I are discussing her book on negotiation titled, Say Less, Get More. Fotini, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. So my first question is, why are so few people comfortable negotiating? I would say it's because there's this there's this myth or this connotation associated with the word negotiation that makes us feel like it's going to be this boxing match. You know, people think negotiation, they go, ooh, defensive, combative, competitive. And that's very few of the negotiations that we actually come across. The vast majority of them are actually just two people having a conversation. They're very collaborative. But if that's the mentality that you have when you go in, it really does affect not only your brain, but it affects your entire system. Your adrenaline's pumping, and that can prohibit you from even you know, stepping up and trying to do it and advocating for yourself, because that's truly what negotiation is. It is trying to advocate for yourself, making sure your voice is heard, and trying to get what you want. I love it. Um, I lived in Singapore briefly when I was a child and it was very common to negotiate there. You would barter for just about anything. Whereas in Canada, we seem to only be in a negotiation when we buy a house, a car, or get a new job. Mm -hmm. Are we just out of practice? I think part of it is social norms. So we're not used to it, right? We don't automatically go there. Like my, I, you mentioned that my dad nicknamed me the negotiator when I was a kid. And it was because I grew up in a big fat Greek household where that was the norm, right? So those were my examples. Those were my role models. So why wouldn't I try to do something since they told me to do it or I watched them do it. And if we don't have that role modeling here in Canada, it's not necessarily something that we think to do. It's not an automatic response. But I think the other thing is most people don't realize that they are indeed negotiating all the time. It's more than just that moment where you're buying your house or your car. It is plenty of moments around you where you're advocating for your quality of life, for your stress levels. Anyone with kids knows that you are actually (laughs) practicing all the time. You just may not register that as part of the negotiation process. So, I mean, I'm using some of the skills I used when I was six years old, but I've certainly learned to refine them since then. But I'm always in awe when I watch children negotiate because it's instinctual for them. Like they know to try it out, um, which I think is fascinating. We forget to do that. And And I see some research around children as well. Like I've done empowerment camps for little girls, because I see the confidence and the attempts at doing that drop off as early as the age of six years old. So we start to get surrounded by what society norms tell us they should be, whether it's conscious or subconscious. And then we start to eliminate some of those negotiations, those everyday negotiations. So you, you sort of talked a little bit about this, but can you talk about why it's important not just to be in the mindset that we negotiate for big things? Like I can sort of imagine a family where everybody's eating uh, pizza and yet none of them wanted it because they weren't willing to negotiate. What are the kind of small situations that we might find ourselves negotiating? 
Yeah. I mean, at work, they're so frequent that we don't even think about them. So when someone comes up to you and says, Hey, can you help me with this other project? Or I'm desperate to get this thing done. And you're looking at a laundry list of to do's where you're going, if I stay late one more day, my spouse is going to divorce me, but yet you do it anyway. Cause you don't want the other person to think you're awful or rude or selfish or any of those things. That's an opportunity for negotiation. And it doesn't have to be combative. It could be, you know what? I'd love to help you. What else would you recommend taking off my plate to make room for that. Or, Hey, if you can help me with this other thing, then I'm happy to help you with this particular project. Now we're finding value for the both of us instead of one, one of us walking away, feeling totally dissatisfied or even more burnt out than before. And I think one of the reasons why burnout is such a hot topic today is because we don't think to use these skills in those moments to prevent that burnout. So there's all of these moments along the way. Time is one of the most precious commodities and we're not negotiating for it the way we should be. Quality of life in terms of those stress levels, like having flexibility. I see people now, there's headlines every single day saying that people are quitting their jobs because they want to keep working remotely. They're quitting instead of negotiating, instead of having a conversation with somebody. So, I mean, Deloitte, I just saw a headline yesterday saying that they are now going to tell people that you can continue working remotely indefinitely if you want to. That likely was the result of somebody speaking up. So we need to have more of those conversations and they exist all around us. And of course, you know, with children, like I said, there's there's plenty of those opportunities, whether it's the pizza or cleaning your room or, you know, taking the dog out for a walk. There's all of those moments that would reduce your stress if you handled them appropriately. So I think this is a little bit off script and, and a little bit outside the book, but because you raised the question of work from home um, and the idea that somebody should speak up for themselves, apparently there's like a 3000 signature petition at Apple where it's collective negotiation. Do you have any thoughts on when it's appropriate to get together with your colleagues and negotiate with the strength of numbers? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly power in numbers, right? So in negotiation, we talk a lot about this buzzword called BATNA. So what's the best alternative to a negotiated agreement? If you were to go in there and say, I want to do this, I want to negotiate, I want to negotiate for flexibility on my own, then they go, well, you know what? I don't want you. I'm just going to go to the next person. I'm going to give somebody else that promotion. I'm not suggesting this to your audience because (laughs) it doesn't generally happen that way, but it could theoretically. The you you limit that likelihood of happening by having power in numbers. If you've got everybody else on your side saying the same thing, now all of a sudden they're running out of batnas. They're going, okay, I guess I don't have as many easy alternatives. I'm not going to go on a hiring spree right now. It's unlikely to be able to replace talent that quickly, especially in a market like today's. So right. I, I there is certainly power in numbers. I'd say. One of the things that that people make in terms of mistakes in negotiation is they go too hard too quickly. So you don't have to go nuclear on the very first go around. You can right. have a conversation, ask lots of really great questions, do some exploration. If you're not getting anywhere, then you can layer up and add the next level of power. Just because you have power doesn't mean you have to abuse it from the very first second. So I wouldn't say there's a magic number or a magic time or a magic number of proposals that has to happen before you get everybody on board. But knowing that you have everybody on board behind you before you step in there, that's going to be super powerful too. It's going to affect your mindset, the way you come across in your confidence and also in the way that they respond to you. And so then if push does come to shove and things do get a little bit more um, controversial, you can say, look, I've been speaking to my peers and we all feel this way. I'm happy to present you with a petition or I'm happy to bring some of them into the mix. You can still make it a little bit more congenial than you would if you went, I've got my team here and we're all signing this thing. It doesn't have to be so combative right out of the gate. That's brilliant. And, and it raises the next question, which was, 
that it's common to confuse negotiation with bullying and even pleading. What's your definition of negotiation? I mean, I go to the dictionary definition. It's two people trying to reach an agreement. It's just two people having a conversation. And so if we can find a way to have a conversation, that's great. It doesn't, the definition is not two people beating each other up until they're (laughs) black and blue. It's not step into the boxing match ready to be on guard. It is about making sure you're measured and making sure that you're considering the other person's perspective. And I talk a lot about how empathy is one of the secret sauces of negotiation, but that's where some people make the mistake of assuming that empathy is agreement. And mm-hmm. so just because I can empathize, just because I can see, you know, where, where's Tim coming from? Where's his head at? That doesn't mean I'm going to agree with everything coming out of his mouth, but knowing that's going to help me sculpt what it is I'm going to say and how we're going to have a more fruitful conversation. So again, it comes down to conversation, not, uh, not, uh, you know, pounding each other down. But there is a spectrum that you describe in the book, right? Sometimes you're, you're in negotiation from a position of competition and sometimes it's about partnership. How can you recognize which situation you're in and how do you adjust your tactics? Yeah, I'm glad you brought it up because so many people, again, go to that default of assuming everything's win-lose. Whatever I take, you lose. Whatever you take, I lose. But when you look at the situation, there's a few things to look out for. One is relationships. Am I going to be dealing with this person over and over again? So if I'm negotiating with an HR manager or my line manager at work, this is not a one and done thing. It's not like walking into the car dealership and I'm never going to see this person again or buying a souvenir on a beach in Mexico or elephant pants in Thailand. Like I like to talk about it. (laughs) Yeah, I like that story. Um, I spent a lot of time in Thailand right before I wrote the book. Um, So, you know, there's those moments where you're never going to see that person again. So you don't have to worry about relationship. I'm not suggesting people get crude or rude in those situations either, but when you have to think about long-term repercussions, then you're inching your way towards partnership. You might not be all the way there. When you can think of things that are more than just price, even at the car dealership, you know, the last time I bought a car, I, they threw in four free oil changes. They handled the paperwork for something. They handled some ministry fee and blah, blah, blah. They did some other things beyond price, which was great. So we managed to find ways to save money in my, you know, in a certain way, but not necessarily off the, the price tag. So we, we got a little closer to partnership or stepped a little bit further away from what I call the more combative zone. And then you think about trust. Do we trust these people? Can you start opening it up and getting more creative? Are there opportunities for you to come up with things beyond just cash? Because the partnership side, the collaborative side is super creative and super complex. It's not simple. It takes a lot more preparation. It takes a lot more sifting through all of the potential value opportunities for those people. So when you look at it, is it is it super one-dimensional where it's cash and nothing else and you're never going to deal with these people again? then you're probably not going to have to worry about too much collaboration, though you don't have to be rude either. If you have a relationship, if there's trust that needs to be fostered between two people, if there's more creativity and complexity in terms of an opportunity between you, well, then you might find yourself in that more collaborative zone and you need to think really carefully, how do you open up the conversation to proverbially, as we say, grow the pie, right? right? The more things you can think of, the bigger the pie gets. At some point, you're still going to have to divide that pie up into slices, but the bigger it is, the bigger the slices we all get. So you could be dancing between those two worlds of competitive and collaborative. And it's that spectrum of how far do we go? How much trust do I need? How long of a relationship or long-term repercussions is this? And that can help you to decipher, you know, how much time do I need to invest in this as well? Platforms like eBay, Amazon, Uber, Airbnb are popular in part, I think, because they eliminate negotiation. 
right? They just make it easy for people to go in and, and they can get a price and they don't have to talk to anyone. For a lot of people, that's a relief. What do we lose when we let platforms set the price and set the terms? Well, I'd say you kind of lose your mental capabilities to a degree. So it is a form of communication, but it's that auctioning. It is the most competitive because there's no relationship. It's 100% anonymous. And what happens is it's game theory, which is a really tricky type of negotiation because I don't even know who I'm negotiating against. I'm negotiating against superstar 999. I don't know if that's a real person or a bot. And what happens is that unknown creates this fear. It triggers something in the brain that makes you go, oh, but I want to get it over that person. And yet I don't know what that person is actually doing. So what happens is people get caught up in the momentum of that and and the changes to their brain and they end up negotiating against themselves. Hmm. They see it go up and they go, I need to hit it again. And I need to hit it again. Where rationally, when you step away from it, you know, the most logical response is wait until the timer runs out right before the timer runs out. That's when you put it in, but you get conditioned to and addicted to needing to feel like you're beating that other person. So there's far more proposals that go back and forth than there should be. So it is a form of communication of, of negotiation and it, and it's one that will trigger the best response for the person that's conducting the, the, or putting it up there on the market, right. they get to hide behind that anonymity and they get to, you know, push some buttons in your brain that get the best out of you in that moment. So it is a very, um, there's, there's a, a distinct power dynamic in that one where the power is held by the person who is putting it up for auction in the first place. Now, that being said, if no one's interested in it, they actually don't have any power. So there has sure. to be some demand for it, but they can, they can play those dynamics of fear that make people the fear of losing and that competitiveness that we all have, the emotions that come along with that to their advantage. So it's a, it's one where I tell people to be very measured and make those decisions before you go in, know what your maximum is Mm -hmm. before you go in there, because it's once you get caught up in that momentum, you're going to have those moments where all rational thought leaves your brain and you go, Oh God, why did I do that? Why did I pay so much for this? Why? Because you got caught up in the momentum, the adrenaline was rushing and you were making poor decisions when that happens. So make the decisions in advance, know what you're getting yourself into. I don't know if you use the term FOMO in the book, but it seems like BATNA, which you, which you described earlier, is best alternative to a negotiated agreement. It's this idea that I know what I'm going to get if I if I just leave the table is a really important antidote to FOMO. Can you expand on that? Why is it so important to know when, when you're going to call it quits? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I've used FOMO in the book, but it's, I probably should have now that I'm thinking about it, because it is that fear. Of, I don't know what I'm missing out on. It's the fear of the unknown, whereas the BATNA is knowledge. So the more I understand, the badness are really, what's my plan B, C, D, E, E, F, all of them. The more of them you have, the more power you have. And that is a form of knowledge. It's knowing if this doesn't work out, I know I have five other things to do. So in the negotiation world, there's a running joke of fall in love with three houses, not one. Because if you fall in love with just one house, Mm. you're going to be paying through the nose for it. But if you know, if this one falls through, there's five other houses on the street that look exactly like it then I'm not going to be, you know, paying a ridiculous amount to get into this one. I have the knowledge, you know, I don't, I'm not operating with that fear of unknown. If I fall in love with just one, I go, when am I going to find another house like this? What am I going to do? So it's that FOMO going, I guess I got to jump on it now. And we saw that happening in my market in Toronto, where, um, I mean, it's been a hot market for a few years now, but people were jumping on houses, houses getting like 15 offers because you never knew when another one was going to come up that had those things that you were looking for. Or what if the market a year from now is priced out of my range and I can't afford it. I might as well overpay now versus potentially maybe overpaying later. Mm 
So it is, that is what drives so many of those decisions. And so it is a form of FOMO. So if you know, okay, if this doesn't work out, I'm going to move to another city or I'm going to find a different house. Yeah. Or I'm going to stay where I am. Then the FOMO kind of goes away. And those are your BATNAs in essence. So the two really do play in together. You, you point out that you shouldn't fall in love with the house in the book. You point out you shouldn't fall in love with a buyer either. Yeah. That there's some, that, that, that depending on the circumstances, because it's not really a negotiation is much more of an auction. And under those circumstances, you described that you should probably just be blind and just focus on your objectives. In some negotiations, yes. When it's when it's just about cash, like it is when it comes to, I mean, for me, that's what it was. Anytime I've sold a place. Yeah. So you're not I, sentimental I about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I sold, I think I tell this story in the book. I sold a home in Toronto uh, now a year and a half ago. And the agent said to me, you know, these buyers created a video for you. It's them and their dog and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I don't want to see the video. Just give me the numbers. I don't want to yeah. get attached to people. I don't want to make emotional decisions. I said from the outset, the most important thing for me is the highest price. That's how I'm going to make my decision. I don't care who the house goes to. They can burn it to the ground for all I care. Not that I want that for my neighbors, but you know. Yeah. Um, and so there, there is this element of, of choosing those things in advance to make sure that you don't get caught up again in that, that FOMO momentum and that emotional response. It's how can you keep yourself as rational as possible? It's the reason why Walmart has been famous for decades. Like I, I used to work in, in manufacturing before I went into consulting and I used to negotiate with Walmart buyers all the time. And they had a rule for as long as I can remember, you are not allowed to take me out to dinner. You are not allowed, like I worked for L'Oreal. So we would take people to dinners and fashion shows and and things that we were sponsoring. And they weren't allowed to participate in any of it because they didn't want their judgment to be clouded by those things. They didn't want to make those emotional responses and be attached to those individuals. And so I, I applaud them for doing it because they all, all they wanted to do was focus on the best price. And if that is your tunnel vision road of doing it, then that is the best strategy to do that. Do I think that was the best strategy in terms of focusing totally on price? No, I'd love for them to get more creative and complex and all of that kind of stuff. But what they were doing was eliminating the other person's opportunity to have power over them, the power of relationships. Um, And that's where, when I was selling my house, it was the same thing. I don't want these buyers to have any power over me. So I'm going to eliminate that altogether. At Walmart, the lowest price really is the law. (laughs) It it certainly has been for as long as I can remember. In the book, you say it doesn't matter if you have all the power in the world. If the other party thinks you have none, then you're in trouble. Can you expand on the sources of real and perceived power in negotiation? Yeah, there was a really interesting study done in 2011 where they looked at um, anxious versus neutral negotiators. And so the study was done where anxious negotiators were made to watch the movie Psycho. And when they came out of it, they actually made deals that were 12% less financially attractive. than neutral negotiators. And so what they concluded from the study was feeling or even looking anxious results in suboptimal deals. Mm -hmm. Because if I see you looking nervous, I'm going to go, Ooh, okay. They don't have any power. Therefore, I guess I'm going to get even more combative. And there's other studies that show us when people get, uh, when people apologize too much, when they apologize for things that they don't need to apologize for. And I'm Canadian. I see this happening all the (laughs) time. I'm sorry. I am too. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I I ran a a workshop a few years ago for, uh, for tween girls. And one of them raised her hand and she's like, I apologize to knocking into the couch the other day. Like, this is what we're conditioned to do. (laughs) So when you apologize for things for which you should not be apologizing for the other party sees you as 
conciliatory and they get more aggressive. So studies show us that when the other party smells weakness, they feel more powerful and they get more aggressive. But if you walked in there, then feeling and looking confident going, I know exactly how to handle this situation. They're going to go, oh, there's a worthy adversary. I'm going to dial it back a little bit. So it can have a dramatic impact on how how that perception is going to be factored into the other person's behavior, right? It's not good enough to know you've got 500 BATNAs behind you. If they think I'm the only game in town and she's super dependent on me, well, then they're going to be thinking, I guess I'm going to go super aggressive on them right now. And that just sets you up for a much more difficult conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So even if you can't walk away, and I know that really you, you can always walk away, but if, if you're still in that zone where it's more appealing than the BATNA, um, there's still power that you describe in being able to hit the pause button. That's how you describe it. What do you mean by that? And where does that power come from? Yeah, I, um, I created these little buttons. I don't know if you can see that. It's literally a pause That's great. button. Yeah, the easy when, button, when I, but pause. Yeah. When I used to do live events, every single person in the audience would get one. My MBA students used to get them. Um, workshop people that, that met me would get them all the time. And it's got my contact information on the back, obviously. But I had MBA students telling me, I've got it around the house all the time. I've got, I've got it on my mirror. I've got it on my nightstand. I've got it as my screensaver. And I'm like, what's it doing on your nightstand? And they said, it helps me. <laughs> it prevents me from getting into arguments with my partner. I was okay. like, okay, that's great. Yeah. What happens is we still have this cave person response. So when we're faced with a threat of some kind, it's almost like we go back in time to our cave person ancestors. When they saw a saber tooth tiger, all rational thought would leave their brain. It would go to their limbs. And that's what it would allow them to run like hell to get away from it. Now we don't have those same physical threats, but we have intellectual threats. And when somebody is, you know, when we're facing a situation that stresses us out, like any type of negotiation, it's a normal response to have that same physiological response. Your heart might start to beat faster. Your palms might start to get sweaty and all that rational energy leaves your brain. And that's what leaves you with those moments that make you go, Oh God, why did I do that? Right. right. Same. It's that trigger response that we talked about with the eBay example. And so what I tell people is if you can find your pause button, just give yourself a moment, take a meditative breath. If you need to do a power pose, another one of my favorite pause moments, um, give yourself that reframing moment where you can say, I'm excited about this instead of I'm so nervous about this. All of those things can actually change your cognitive abilities. So they can actually change your brain and change outcomes. There was one of my favorite studies that I talk about in the book is a 2013 Harvard study. And they took people and they made them sing in front of a group. So they made them sing journeys. Don't stop believing. <laughs> I'm not shy around a microphone, but I can understand why other people are. Sure. I think it's like the number one fear, even more than death. But they told them before they did that, they put them into three groups. And they said to group number one, I want you to describe yourself as anxious. Number two was, I want you to describe yourself as excited and number three was told to say nothing at all. The group that, that described themselves as excited, according to a computer that measured volume and pitch, outperformed the other two groups. Hmm. And if you're thinking, okay, maybe they had better vocal abilities, they also outperformed them on a math test and a speech test. So they ended up being perceived as more persuasive, more confident, and persistent. So that means they took themselves out of that anxious mindset and put themselves into an excited mindset and they change their own cognitive abilities. So if everybody could channel their mental pause button, however they need to do it, whether it's meditation or saying I'm excited or the power pose, then you can actually change your brain. And that for me was eye-opening when I started seeing this. And it, and it really um, it, it intrigued me into learning more about psychology and how the brain works and how to factor that into the negotiation process. 
the the challenge I think sometimes with with pausing is you don't want to just sit there and mute, right? Yeah. But I think that uh, how do you how do you feel about this? It, it's not just in person. Sometimes it's through email or you get a phone call and. I think a, a useful approach is just to say, that's really interesting. Let me think about that. Yeah. It's kind of unassailable, right? You can't really say, no, 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 don't think about it. I mean, you get people who try to put time pressure and I'd like to talk about that, but in the absence of time pressure, you can just back off and, and actually think things through. Yeah. And I, I love how you described it because what you're doing in that moment saying, let me think about it is you're owning the pause. You're owning the presence. And, and that is, powerful in itself. So, you know, most people assume, well, if I'm not saying anything, they're going to think I'm stupid. But if you can own that moment when you're live, if you can have it with a look of, you know, pensiveness on your face and that posture that says, I need a moment, I'm taking up my physical space versus if you're doing this, leaning over your computer, your shoulders hunched and all of that kind of stuff that could send a very different message. But when you own that moment of pause, and if you have to actually verbally frame it, so be it on email, it could be, I need a few minutes to think about this. I need to confer with my accountant or whatever it is on the phone. It could be, that's interesting. Give me a second. I'm just taking some notes. And then they're going to go, ooh, they're thinking about it. Okay, I'm on the edge of my seat now waiting to hear what's <laughs> going to come out of Tim's mouth next. Right. Um, you know, those are those moments where you can own it and just give yourself a moment to calm down and recollect your brain for, for a few seconds. So I'm rethinking my questions order here, but um, there are two ways that our counterparties can use time to their advantage. One is to say, you got to act now. It's a limited time offer. The other is to drag things out until you get into this sunk cost fallacy where you've, oh my God, I've been negotiating with this guy for a week. I got to get something done. Yeah. Can you talk about those two things and how you counteract them? So I hear that the time pressure deadline thing happen all the time. It's a very common tactic, no matter what industry I'm in, I, even in personal lives, you know, even in when you think about real estate, for example, someone will put an offer on the house and say, this expires at 5 p.m. Um, you know, those are tactics to try and, again, put pressure on the other person, make that rational thought go out of their brains and have them do things at your will. And what you can do in those moments when that deadline is coming is to go, that's interesting. I'm on a, I'm on a deadline. You have five minutes of my attention. Um, I remember working in a manufacturing and when a large global retailer would say to me, the deadline is 5 p.m. Friday, I would laugh a bit. I'm like, what are they going to do with it on the weekend? Pretty right. much nothing. And I would respond saying, thanks so much for your input. I'll get back to you as soon as I have all the information I need. I'll likely be able to check in with you next week. Just because they said they have a deadline doesn't mean that's my deadline. You know, Walmart was always famous for the sundown rule. I think people forget what the origin of that was. The origin was when, um, when Sam Walton came up with the sundown rule, it was a courtesy thing for your peers. It was mm. get back to them by sundown. But I've heard buyers in the past say, you know, we have that sundown rule. I said, yeah, that's your, that's your rule. And I'm going to do my best to get back to you in a, in a timely manner. And when I have all the information I need, I will absolutely get back to you. So it's again, better it's better to get you the right answer. Yeah, it's owning that time instead yeah. of allowing them to drag you into their timeline. And if you can reframe that, if you know you have to get something done by five o'clock on Friday, you need to get it to the printers or whatever it is, instead of saying, can you do it for me? I really need this done by five o'clock. It's going, look, you have until five o'clock to make sure that these printers get your advertising or whatever it is in there. Um, how can you use that time to your advantage instead of feeling taken advantage of in that moment? That's what's going to be really important for those moments. So I'd say when it comes to timing, it's making sure that 
you are not being a victim of it, that you are in control of it. And I know that might sound really perplexing and, and abstract for some folks, but it, even when it comes to the other piece that you mentioned in your question, it's some people like to drag it out. So it's like, well, I've invested this much time. Why wouldn't I? We need <laughs> to have those pause moments along the way to go, does this even make sense anymore for me? Right. Am I doing this because I'm emotionally attached to it or because I, I just need to have some satisfaction? Can I get satisfaction elsewhere? If you can schedule in those moments of pause, then that's really compelling as well. I get brought in to actually consult with large organizations. Fortune 50 companies will bring me in for their high stakes negotiation. And one of the first things we do is we plot out a timeline. And because, you know, they, I've been brought in 18 months before negotiations going to take place. And I go, what events are going to happen between now and that 18 months? Where are their natural pauses? Where are there moments where the time is going to be on your side and time's going to be against you? How do we turn those things around? You don't want to be negotiating, for example, when you're in the middle of your national sales meeting or when the entire team is on vacation in the summer, that's going to be a nightmare for you. So how do you move things up or own the timeline and schedule things in advance so that they're not able to take control and drag things out? I even had one client once tell me, he goes, we always want to be the middle finger. <laughs> he said, you never want to be the first one out of the gate because you're probably giving too much. You never want to be the last one negotiating in this when they're negotiating with a whole bunch of vendors because they're probably going to be scraping everything they can out of you if they have more budget that they need to get out of you. But if you're in the middle, you're sort mm -hmm. of in the sweet spot. So I always want to give them a middle finger. <laughs> so I thought that was an interesting way of looking at it, but it made sense to me in terms of that, that timeline scenario. So you're under the least pressure if you're in the middle of the group. That is funny. Um, so you've mentioned this a couple of times already, and it's certainly woven into the book in several places. It's the importance of knowing what you really want, because when you're in the midst of the back and forth, you, you can forget. Why is it so easy to forget what we really want? And how do you make sure people stay on target? I mean, it's some of the things that you already mentioned. It's that sunken, you know, fallacy. It's I've already invested this much time, so I might as well keep going. But it doesn't, if it doesn't make sense to keep going, well, then why would I do that? And, and other times it's really that adrenaline rush. You know, I've been involved in litigation in the past where the lawyer asked me up front, what do you want to get out of this? And I told her my objective. And so many, many, many months later, over a year later, when we're in mediation and I'm getting really upset about things, knowing that I, I have to press my own pause button. And she said to me, I just want to remind you of what you said to me. You said your objective was this. Would walking yeah. away from this mediation solve that objective for you? And I was like, damn it, you're right. <laughs> and so she was my pause button in that moment. But it's knowing those things in advance so that you don't get caught up in the momentum and end up, you know, negotiating against yourself on eBay or something stupid like that. And whatever, you know, parallel there is in, in your other universes that you play in, it's knowing those things up front, solidifying them in your mind so that when the going gets tough, when you're under the most stress, you can go back to that preparation and go, when I was of sound mind, I said, this was true. Is that still true today? And that's why I'm brought in so for so many of these consulting projects that I'm brought in for. It's me going, hey, guys, remember at the beginning you said the most you would spend is this or that you needed to get at least these five things out of it in order to invest in this? I'm just reminding you of what you said. And they go, oh, yeah, we did. Um, it's very easy when you're so close to it to be stuck in that in that momentum, in that emotion. And that's why outsiders like me who have a bit more objectivity are brought in to help be that voice of reason for those high stakes negotiations. Absolutely. Um there is a cliche that to win negotiations, you need to drive a hard bargain, but you also say that being likable can be profitable. How do you balance these impulses? I would say instead of driving a hard bargain, it's driving a satisfying bargain. 
And so uh, driving a hard bargain means simply what we know about people and their and their levels of satisfaction. I, I talk in one chapter about doing the dance of satisfaction. And so if I were to go into, if you were to come into my house and say, okay, I'll offer you $2 million for it. And I go, great. And you go, wait a second. Did I just offer her too much? Right. I need to drive quote unquote, that hard bargain to make you feel like you had to work for it. Cause if it was too easy, mm -hmm. then you feel like you've been taken advantage of. So it's about doing the dance, right. Making them work a little bit for it and, and playing into what we know is this, I'm anticipating some kind of movement back and forth. So I want to give you that satisfaction. So it's a satisfying bargain instead of me going, no, Tim, you, I'm going to beat you up until you give me more money. That's not really all that satisfying for you either. No. Um, so it's just about doing the dance. And when it comes to likability, it's interesting that people assume um, they make one of two mistakes. One of the mistakes is I need to go in there and be super tough and be ready to beat them up, or at least make them think I'm ready to beat them up. And the other mistake is I'm just going to give them this thing because I want them to like me because we are driven by our need to be liked. That's who we are. That is back in our ancestor DNA. We moved in tribes of people. We didn't move as loners. And so we want to be liked, but we try to buy the likability in the form of giving away value. And that's not necessary. And I quote Robert Cialdini all the time. He's written a number of wonderful books on persuasion and influence over the years. And he talks about one study in particular, which I talk about a lot in my keynotes and in the book and so on, where they took a group of MBA students from an Ivy League school and they put them into two separate groups. And they told the first group, get down to negotiating right away. Mm -hmm. And they told the second group, spend a few minutes getting to know each other. And so in the first group who got down to business immediately, 55% of them managed to close a deal. Now that's not terrible. Yeah. In the second group, those who spent a few minutes getting to know each other, 90, 90% closed a deal. And some people are probably thinking, oh, sure, they got to know each other. That means they probably wanted to be liked. They probably gave them what they wanted just to close the deal. But here's the kicker. They closed more deals and they closed better deals. They closed deals that were on average 12% greater in value. So likability doesn't come from giving them everything that they want. And it also shows us that going in there and, you know, puffing out your chest isn't necessarily the best response either, but spending a few minutes at the very beginning, breaking the ice, getting to know each other, that likability can actually serve you so well when it comes to the negotiation process. It can create trust. It can create that complexity and creativity that we need in order to move from that very narrow focus in the competitive zone to a more collaborative one. Um, and so there's, there's some real magic in balancing that likability factor and still doing the whole satisfaction dance. The thing you said about me offering you $2 million for your house, I can't afford to, I'm not putting that on the table, <laughs> but um, the way you framed it actually illuminated something for me. The, what I was told was it's insulting to not negotiate for things when I was living in Singapore, that the culture was, you really should. And it, it just occurred to me that if you say, yeah, okay, fine, 10 bucks for that trinket, whatever they may be getting the 10 bucks, but they're also getting the insult that you're not really engaged in what they're selling or who they are. And so that yeah. back and forth is part of the, it's part of the dance between two people and, and showing respect. I, I never really thought of it that way. Yeah. It's part of the customs, right? And you're not yeah. participating in these customs and you're there, there might be a part of their brain that goes, they're not respecting me in this way. If they're not doing the dance along with me, I think it's interesting that you, that you can bring that, um, that personal experience to it. 
because there is so much to this whole dancing thing, which I think is why Canadians and Americans and all the people I see here in, in, in this part of the world are so flabbergasted by it. Cause it's just not, it's just not a part of their DNA, I guess. It's not part of the cultural norms. It's becoming that way. We're learning more and more on how to do it. And it is certainly a topic that is getting more and more interest every day, but we're, I don't know that we'll ever be, um, the Singaporean way, or, you know, when I look at Thailand or even Greece, I grew up going to Greek markets when we were there in the summer and it was totally normal to start, to start negotiating for your tomatoes or your underwear or whatever you were buying in that moment. Um, So, and it is part of normalizing part of the culture. The other thing that's interesting though, is when you look at countries like China, I've been fortunate to have so many students from all over the globe when I teach my MBA classes. And when you, when you look at those cultures too, there's also going too far. So if the price, if the list price for my house is $2 million and you offer me 500,000, it might go beyond. So you've insulted me now. I'm not even going to engage with you. So it's about understanding what are those norms because you might so okay, they're expecting me to do this, but you can't go too far. So it's really understanding who is it that I'm dealing with? What are their cultural norms and, and how do I play and dance within that? What's the choreography look like where I am right now in this part of the world or with this individual? Cause I've got lots of students who come from that part of the world, come to Canada and you'd assume they might do those same norms, but they go, Hey, I'm in Canada now. They're not used to this. So I'm going to adapt to where I am. So who is that individual and how are they operating? It's such an important piece of the equation. So that, that raises a fascinating thought, which is uh, you almost need to negotiate the form of negotiation. Yeah. That the person it, it, with the most power or perceived power can actually shape the way negotiations are done. Like you were saying with Walmart, they're the monster, yeah. right? And you, do, you, you dance the way they dance. And so you, you actually have to negotiate and chip away at their rules to bring it to a format you, you are more comfortable engaging in. Yeah. I talk to my clients a lot about anchoring the type of negotiation. So if you can set the foundation, start the conversation by going, Hey, we're going to talk about all of these things. I have an agenda of all the items I want to talk about. And the agenda includes more than just price. Now, all of a sudden their mind is automatically going, you've planted some seeds in their brain that goes, okay, we're going to have a much more complex negotiation. But if you let them anchor first and go, Hey, we're here to get the best price and nothing, but now you're scrambling to fit their framework. So you can set the framework by being the one to, to do it first, by setting an agenda, by planting those seeds of conversation to get their brain lending itself to this moment of more complexity, creativity, and so on. Or if you're like I was when I was selling my house, it's no, you're going to give me a piece of paper. I'm not going to meet anybody in person. I don't care what you look like or who you are. Just give me your price on a piece of paper and I'm done with you. And that was me framing it as price and nothing more. And that was you framing it, knowing it was a seller's market too. Yeah, absolutely. That helps. (laughs) What is endowment bias? So endowment, I use my George Michael mug as my, um, as my (laughs) example in this one. So I'm a big George Michael fan and I went to a concert and I got a mug and it's my favorite and it brings me joy to see it on in my cupboard every time I open it. Now that mug, if you look at the actual true value of it, what it costs to make it, the raw material costs, I don't know, probably cost 50 cents or a dollar. And they probably charged me $20 for it when I got it many years ago. But if someone said to you, to me, you know, sell me your mug, I'd be like, this is priceless. You're going to have to pay me thousands of dollars. You can't get a mug like this anymore. And they'd be like, that's crazy. 
all it is, is a bunch of clay and glaze. And why would I do that? But because I own it, because I have emotional attachment to it. Now, all of a sudden I see the value is so much more. Now, if someone else were to try and sell me their, um, I don't know, Blink 182 mug, I'd be going, I'll give you a dollar for it. They go, what are you doing? They're, they're feeling insulted, but because they own it, they attach more value to it. It's the same thing if you had like a beat up 1995 Toyota Corolla, but it was your first car. So you've got that sentimental attachment to it. You've endowed upon it some value that other people aren't going to see. They're going to see scraps of metal and a few pieces that they're going to be able to sell off, but you're seeing you know, so many memories that are priceless to you and therefore you attach a higher value to it. And it's a fallacy that we can get wrapped in. in. And again, we have to press that pause button to go, what is this truly worth in this moment? And how is the other person going to view this and value this as well? Can I change their perceptions of it? Potentially, maybe not to meet all of, all of those uh, memories that are attached to it as well. Well, that actually raises, um, I, I'm renting here it's close to my son's school. And I made the mistake of saying it's close to my son's school. I think uh, that was a bad negotiation technique. And what, what you're saying implies to me that you need to be really canny about saying that that Corolla has sentimental value when you're negotiating to buy it. Yeah. That you're, it, isn't, it isn't a transaction. It's probably not going to be a relationship. And so you need to play your cards a little close to the vest. Exactly. Absolutely. So, you know, I talk in the book about information as power, and I think everybody can agree with that. It's a common norm in our society. So when you're in this competitive zone where there's no real relationship, there's no real trust, and you're talking about money, no one's really going to tell you, here's how much money I actually have in my pocket. Feel free to take advantage of me. That's not how the world works. So when we're talking about that more competitive win-lose zone, you keep that information close to your chest. When you're moving into the more collaborative space, you're going to have to open up a little bit and share some information so we know what ingredients would go in the pie, what would be palatable to you. But again, when you go back to that hey, I just need to, I need to get the best price for this house. I'm not going to be negotiating anything outside of price with these folks. Maybe I will. Maybe I can find ways to get them to manage the landscaping or do some other things. And now all of a sudden you're moving a little less um, into that, into that, out of that competitive and into the more collaborative space. But the second they have information about you and they know how attached you are to this, now, all of a sudden, they can use that to their advantage. They're going to sit back and go, well, I know he needs to be near his son's school, and we're the only one that's available for rent near that school. So pretty much, yeah. if I just wait it out, I'll get the most I possibly can out of this person. So those are where we want to be able to think about it in advance and go, what information do I hold back? And what information would be appropriate to share? You might want to share things like, you know, you've had long-term rentals in the past, and that's going to be beneficial to you because they're going to go, oh, I really want this guy because I don't want to be turning over people over and over again. But the other piece of information where you go, I desperately need to be close to my son's school. Well, that's the information you're going to hold close to your chest. So it really does take that that pausing in advance to think about what information should I be sharing right now? What would be helpful and what would be harmful in this moment? So dear listener buy this book. It'll save you thousands of dollars. I should have said less. Um, let's revisit bracketing. Um, you know, it's that whole, are you here to lease or buy? Do you want cauliflower or broccoli? I can give you anywhere from 5,000 to 6,000 for your car, depending on the, the, the condition it's in. How do you use bracketing and how can you respond when you're presented with an offer in this way? Yeah. So I talk a lot about using ranges in negotiation and typically I don't, I don't advocate for using ranges because if you're saying uh, it's somewhere around five to ten thousand dollars, where two thousand dollars is around five and twelve thousand is around ten, <laughs> so that can really 
give the other person, it's almost like a, a red flag to go, these people are movable. So I'm going to have lots of room to do plenty of dancing here. So that could signal a loss in credibility for you. However, I'd say the one exception to that is when I'm talking specifically about salary negotiations. Mm -hmm. And in that particular scenario, as much as we'd like to assume it's going to be competitive because it's so much about cash, it really is more in the middle of the spectrum, unless you're 100% commissioned. That's a different story. But if you are somebody who's thinking about flexibility at work and you know long-term, not having to, to leave and find another job tomorrow, long-term relationships, if you're thinking about bonuses, if you're thinking about benefits, if you're thinking about all of these other things that could help you grow the pie, well, now all of a sudden you need to think about trust and long-term relationships. And this is where ranges can actually help you to appear more cooperative. But even then, I encourage people to be strategic about it. So if you are going in for a job offer negotiation and you want to get 100,000 out of it, the range you should be selecting is somewhere around, I'm going to guess, 98,000 to, to 112. And that now is a range where you can say, look, based on the market conditions, based on my experience, based on competitive offers, based on the size of the business, here's what I would expect somebody in my field with my experience level to receive in this job. Now they're going to go, oh, 112, that seems like too much. I don't know if we can afford that, but we could probably squeeze in something at that $100,000 mark. And so you now got what you wanted, making it look like you were doing the dance to come down from that 112. If you had started at 90 to 100, trying to get that 100, they're going to go, okay, well, she told me that 90 is acceptable. So why yeah. the hell would I pay her 100? So it's about being strategic, but using it to say, I'm going to try and be as flexible as possible with you. Obviously, I'd like to be at the high end of this range. I think I deserve the high end of that range, but I want to try and find a way to work with you. How close can you get to these figures? Um, now, all of a sudden, that range is, okay, they're trying to work with me. They're not being demanding and combative and banging their fists on the table. So I'm going to do what I can to work with them as well. And even companies will also offer up ranges. They know that there's a range because some people are going to come with more experience or less. Um, you know, there's room for growth. If you're, if you're brand spanking new to this role, you're going to be at the bottom end of the range. You're going to earn your potential and finally get there. But if you're coming in to negotiate with them, you want to make sure that you're not being treated like the rookie at the bottom end of that range right. if you deserve to be there in the first place. So it's about thinking strategically about ranges. When I had somebody come into my home and tell me that I think your uh, renovations are going to cost anywhere from uh, $50,000 to $70,000, i am going, do you even know what you're doing? Because I don't see you as credible if you can't narrow that down. And I'm going to ask loads of questions to make sure that I can start to narrow down where is this going to go? Because if they're telling me 50 to 70, who knows? Tomorrow when they get started, they might go, oh, yeah, you know what? I didn't really do all my homework. Here's another $10,000 in costs. Here's another 15 grand in costs. That, that creates trust problems for me. So if you're coming at me with a range like that, that shows that you haven't really done your homework, then I'm going to be really skeptical. And I'm going to try and push you to that 50,000 versus accepting that 70 that you mentioned to me. If, however, you're presenting it in that salary negotiation scenario, then I see you as trying to be flexible. And because I always tell people to come prepared with credibility and objective information, it's, it's paired with the appropriate information to go, here's a narrow range, and here's where, where I'm able to play with you to give you some satisfaction. So forgive me for harping on this, but I did promise the audience that we would talk about salary negotiation. And I think, it's a, I think that everything you said makes sense but it doesn't take necessarily the nervousness out of that conversation. So 
let's role play if, if you will permit me. Sure. And, and you have just applied for a job and you, like, the scenario you laid out, it's roughly a hundred thousand dollar job. Given my experience, given the responsibility, given the size of the company, that's your, your, so Fotini, what are your salary expectations? So based on my experience level and what I'm seeing out in the market for comparable companies and, uh, and other competitive offers, here's what I would expect for a role like this. I would expect a hundred to 110,000. Now, granted, I don't know the size of your company and what that, what that looks like or what your capabilities are, but I'm curious to know how close can you get to those figures? Brilliant. Okay. I love it. Is there a, an opportunity to say something along the lines, well, let's talk about the value that the position can provide this company and sort of yeah. construct it from what they get as opposed to what you want? Absolutely. And I would hope that that would happen even before you start putting numbers on the table. So I tell people any information you feel that they need to know to make a decision about your proposal, put it out there first. Because if you're putting out numbers first, and then you're coming up with all of these reasons afterwards, it feels like you're trying to dig yourself out of a hole. It feels much more desperate. The order is really important. Right. And I actually lean on, and I think I mentioned it in the book as well, I lean on Simon Sinek's Golden Circle. And he talks about starting with why. He had a huge viral um, TED talk that spurred a book as well called Start With Why. And when he thinks about that golden circle, the what is the outer ring. And that is the proposal in our case and the negotiation. The how is the process, the middle ring. And then that center bullseye is the why or the motivation. Now, typically he tells us, which I've found to be true, that we instinctively start with the outside what and then we then we follow up with the how and the why. We may have a really great why, but the reality is they probably tuned us out before right. we even had a chance to get there because all they heard was like, what? You want how much from me? But if you can start with the why and you can go, hey, based on my experience, I know what I can bring into the business is exponential growth in a very short amount of time. So what can you think about what why, what motivation would serve them? What would benefit that individual? And if you can come up with that, they're gonna, you're going to get their head nodding going, okay, I want to know more about this person. So by the time you get to the what, to that proposal, then they're going to be going, well, that might be a little bit too much for me, but let me see what I can do to get as close as I can to that versus you know, you starting out with something they think is exorbitant and they go, that's just ridiculous. They're, they've tuned you out, even though they might be polite enough to like smile and nod at you. They're probably not absorbing what's coming out of your mouth. So that order is going to be really important to make sure, like you said, to think about what is the benefit for them. And I think it's the reason why we also instruct women specifically in salary negotiations, because women are treated differently and minorities are treated differently. You really need to think of the we instead of the I. It's not what do I want. It's here's what we can do together. Yeah. And that's going to make them much more collaborative and make them want to find ways to work with you. It's that likability factor at work too. So what I liked about it, and, and I'm, I'm not being dismissive, but let me, let me finish the thought okay. that, that you didn't just put the number out, you embroidered it. You, you, if I just said to you 110, it's almost, it, it really feels combative. It's like, that's my number. What's yours? You yeah. put something around it to sort of, and, and I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but there was a study done where you'd have somebody interrupt to say, can I use the photocopier? Yeah, I have seen this. One. Right. I love it. And, and the idea is that, that if you just say it's because I need to make a photocopy, which is ridiculous. Of course you need to make a photocopy. Why else would you button line? But if you have a, because people are like, oh, all right. 
So it does help a little bit to, to actually put some something around it, some justification to say, I've looked into the market. I, I, I think that that really helps avoid, because that's, I think, the, the scary part is just putting a number out. Yeah. Oh, boy. Now we're just going to lob back and forth. And, and I feel like with these salary negotiations specifically, when you're using that objective information, and I say objective, it can't be opinion. It's like, I think I deserve this much. I don't care what you think, because I have my own opinions sure. about that. Now we're getting into an argument. But if you say, here's some objective information, now you are not coming across as irrational. They're going, oh, well, that's objective. If I'm not okay with that objective information, then I'm the one that's going to look irrational. So I'm feeling societal pressure to now be just as rational as this other person. And for you, it's taking away that fear of the unknown. Information is power. So go armed there with lots of information. Do your homework. Find out what Payscale and Glassdoor and industry folks and, and peers and things like that are talking about so that you can go in there knowing you're not being a crazy person by asking for too much. That will help to calm your nerves. But it'll also make sure that when you can come with that, that objective information, you're eliminating the possibilities that they're going to think you're crazy. You're eliminating some of that fear of the unknown reactions. I don't know how they're going to react to me. I actually do know how they're going to react to me because I'm coming in presenting myself as rational. So why would they do anything but something rational in return? And if they're responding really poorly to something that is super credible, then they're probably not the place where you want to be because that's a red flag for all sorts of other problems. Absolutely. And it raises the question for me, why do so many jobs get posted without a pay range? I mean, they're almost inviting people to come in with unmatched expectations. What's the gambit? Yeah. And, and that is starting to change, which I'm thrilled about because companies are realizing if you want to keep people here for the long haul, transparency is critical. You know, Salesforce was a pioneer in this by going, we're going to go through every single person's pay and make sure that there are no gender pay gaps in our in our world. And banks, and I know in banks in Canada, when my MBA students are applying for roles all the time, they're very transparent. Here are the bands in our organization. And you expect there to be bands because again, you're going to get more experience. You're going to be more valuable to them in that role. So when you have more transparency, it's a good sign of a cultural norm that is going to serve you well while you're there. But if if they're if they're putting the job description out there without it without some kind of price tag attached to it, I am a little bit skeptical, and I'm and I caution people to ask loads of questions and make sure they come anchored with all of that information to set the tone, as opposed to allowing these people to anchor something that's really low and get you off of off of your game and go, whoa, I wasn't expecting that. What do I do now? Now all of a sudden my wheels are turning and rational thought has disappeared. Um, so come in armed with all the information. If they're not giving it to you, then make sure you're the one giving it to them. My favorite say less, get more illustration in your book takes place on a plane. Can you share the aisle seat story? Oh yeah. This one came from a friend. She was, she had gotten off a plane and she's like, Fotini, I have to tell you this story. It was hilarious to me. I, I could see you playing out in this the whole way. It was as, as if you were a person in this, uh, a bug in this person's ear. So there was, I mean, I, I know everybody who has flown recently knows it is difficult to, they charge you for everything, right? So you don't know who you're going to be sitting next to, even if you're booking your seats together, because that's an excuse for us to charge you more to have you sit together. So there was a couple who was separated by a person in the middle seat. And you would assume that the middle seat is the worst seat in the world because you don't have the luxury of the aisle and you don't have the luxury of the window. So you would assume that this person in the middle seat has no power. This couple, however, wanted to sit together, of course. And so they asked this person, hey, would you mind? Uh, I can't remember now if it was the window or the aisle. I think they were um, trying to put her on the aisle. 
Yeah. So she was yeah. like, they said, would you mind switching and taking the aisle seat so we can sit together? She's like, I'm happy to switch if you give me the window. And they said, well, we want to sit together and, and, and give up the aisle seat. Yeah. And I would be happy to switch with you if you give me the window. <laughs> so now all of a sudden they're like, she knows, just like you said with the house, I need to be close to the school. She knows you want to be next to each other. So why would I settle for the aisle seat if all I want is the window seat? It was, she was using that information as power. And the, and my friend who was there observing it was like, she was never rude. She was just very matter of fact. Yeah. If you want to sit together, I'm happy to take the, uh, the window seat. And, and they, she got her way because they had no other choice. It was which ones they had to prioritize, which is more important, hanging onto the window or sitting together. And she put them in that position by saying, here's my proposal. If you can do this, then I will do that. That's brilliant. I'm, t- I'm team aisle seat. I'll take the aisle seat if that ever comes up, but I, I shouldn't say that out loud. And I've just given away my power. Well, we'll travel well together because I'm the, I'm window all the way. Like I don't like window? people okay. having to climb over me to get out. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, for every proverb, there's an equal and opposite proverb. So one who hesitates is lost, but good things come to he who waits. Mm-hmm. Who has more power in a negotiation? The one who calls or the one who answers? Ooh. Um, you know, if I went through all of the negotiation theory that I've read and the academic stuff, I would think it's actually could be both. I would think it's the one who calls because they can anchor, but at the same time, you know, I run case studies for my clients all the time and they interpret it in a very different way. So for example, you know, somebody is selling a garden gnome and they call, they call up and they go, Hey, I'm interested in your garden gnome. And you could be perceiving that as, Ooh, you're interested. Therefore I can get as much money as I want out of you. Um, But the other could be true. I'm interested in your garden gnome and I'm willing to pay some small amount. Well, now I've anchored at this small end of the range and you know, and now you don't feel as though you can drag me away from that anchor quite so easily. So I feel like it can be played both ways in some senses. Um, You know, if you knocked on my door and said, I really want to buy your house and I didn't have it for sale, then I would think you're pretty desperate to get your hands on my house. But if I have a sign out there, which is basically calling and saying, hey, everybody who wants to come see my house, you might be thinking, okay, she must be desperate to sell. So I could really interpret it both both ways. That's a tough one. Well, it is a tough one. I, I don't know if you watch tennis or play tennis, but there's a slight statistical advantage to serving. So if you yeah. lose when you're serving, you're starting to lose the game. Do you think in your, just in your heart of hearts, do you think there's an advantage to serving or receiving when you, when you kick off that negotiation, it seems like equal skill. Yeah. You're on, you're really on either side of the net. I love control. So I feel like for me, it would be the serving bit, knowing yeah. that I can direct the ball where I want it to go and make the other person run. And again, when it comes to the negotiation theory that I'm, I lean on the most, it is really anchoring. It is setting the tone. So if I'm making the call, I could look desperate or I could take control of it and go, hey, I'm interested in this. I do have a limited budget, but I'm interested to hear what you have to say about your willingness to sell. So I feel like there's ways for me to frame it. Um, and I, if I have control of that moment first versus being reactive, I don't, I'm not telling people that you can never have control if you're the second one to go, because I teach people ways to overcome that moment. But I do think there is a home court advantage or a serving advantage in many cases. Statistically, that is the case, even when it, when it comes to home and away games for teams, right. that's why it is such a controversial thing. That's why the Super Bowl is not played on anybody's home turf. <laughs> um, so I do think that there's, there's something to be said about being the one that goes first. So this has been a lot of fun and really valuable. We're down to the last question. All right. 
Has there ever been a negotiation in popular culture, like a TV show or a movie, or even in the news where you thought, boom, that is such a great example of negotiation? A hundred percent. For me, it was a few years ago, it was NAFTA. So Mm. the North American Free Trade Agreement. And you had very different styles of negotiation, right? You had, it wasn't the American style. It was Donald Trump. He actually stepped in and wanted to get involved in this. And his way is banging fists on the table, my way or the highway. He's a short-term guy. It's a one-trick pony. So we know exactly how he's going to handle it because he does it the same way every single time. Whereas Christian Freeland, who was the representative on the Canadian side, she was very much, um, she's a, a very collaborative person, but I loved what I saw from her because you can't go in there and be you know, all warm and fuzzy and holding hands and all of that kind of stuff <laughs> when you know the other person is going to be banging their fists on the table and puffing out their chest. Yeah. So I just felt like she handled herself so beautifully in that moment where she, she was like very matter of fact about it. She wasn't going down that mirroring him and banging fists, but she also was very conscious of, I'm not going to go all the way to partnership here because that's clearly not what we have. I'm going to play the diplomat. And she did it so beautifully. Then you had the curveball from the Mexicans because they ended up doing a side deal and kind of at, at some point and squeezing Canada out. So it was this really fascinating dynamic of every case study I've ever seen. And so many of the negotiations that I get brought into from the corporate world as well, because so few of the corporate responses that I, that I get involved in are really one dimensional in terms of only having those two people. I read about the hostage negotiation stuff all the time. And I, and I think there's so much value in learning that comes from that, but that truly is always going to be a two person negotiation right? The hostage taker yeah, and yeah. the FBI person. You never say put the hostages on the line. Right. <laughs> we'll you never say we're with them. hostages for different hostages. Like that <laughs> yeah. just doesn't happen. Whereas in, you know, if I'm brought into a Walmart negotiation, Walmart could be saying to the large company, um, I'm going to negotiate with you, but if I don't like what you're doing, I'm going to go negotiate with somebody else. Yeah. So now it's all of a sudden it's this Mexico, Canada, United States thing that I thought was playing out every single parallel I've seen in so many ways, which I thought was really cool. Um, so yeah, I loved watching that one. I wrote a case study on it. I, I just think it was it was just handled really, really well. Is there room for improvement? Always, but I felt like when you when you throw in a a, a character like Donald Trump into the mix, it could have gone sideways in many different ways. But I think everybody ma- maintained their composure quite well in that one. That is fascinating. Thank you so much, Fotini. It's been a real pleasure to have you on the show. It's been, an, it's been a joy to talk to you as well. Thank you for the great questions. My guest today was Fotini Iconomopoulos. Fotini's LinkedIn profile and information on where to get her book titled Say Less, Get More will be in the show notes. My name is Tim Hampton, and you can reach me at tim at unusuallywellinformed.com. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll subscribe and join me for the next show with another unusually well-informed leader in business and technology. Thank you for listening to the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast. The opinions expressed by the host and guests on the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast are their own and do not reflect that of their employer or any other affiliation. 